I've just about had enough of you. Affirmative day. I read you. I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hello, and welcome to 50 Years of Shit Robots with Matt Brown. That's me. Hello, and Stephen Murray. That's me. Hello. <laughs> that could be our. That sounded a little like Spatoon Ronnie's. Nice, didn't it? Did it? That's all we've got time for this evening, so it's good night from me, and it's good night from him. Good night. Good night. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's me. Hello. <laughs> and that's me. Hello. Love it. Love it. We've got catchphrases. It's taken us 94 episodes. (laughs) We've got catchphrases. Now, first off, I'd like to apologise for the state of my voice, which is deep and husky. It's normally me, isn't it? It is normally you, because I've got a cough, so I'm going to be coughing all the way through this. So I can only apologise in advance for that. Um, But uh, welcome to the first of our sort of mini-season for the film 2001. If you're a regular listener, you'll know know this already, but if you're new to the podcast, we are looking at robot films between the years 1927 and 1977. Why those two years, Stephen Murray? Because they're bookended by lovely robots, and in the middle there is just a wasteland of shit robots. Maria at one end from Metropolis, and C-3PO based on Maria in 1977 in Star Wars. And uh, if this is your first time listening, the headline is that they're not all shit robots in between. No. By God, there's a lot of them. There are. I mean, we're looking at 2001 because of Hal. Our definition of robot is slightly like looser and broader than 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 you might imagine. So we scoop up androids, cyborgs, and AI as well, and to a certain extent, automatons too. I suppose. I think so. So Hal is in two thousand and one. I, I mean, iconic. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not going to be a shit robot. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to prejudge. No, I was. Well, I was talking about it last night with somebody, and he, he, he the way I was talking about it, he was kind of borderline. Well, we'll save it, Steve. Yeah, save it. We'll, we'll do all of that when we look at the film proper. But we thought we'd eke out a bit more content. <laughs> <laughs> With a couple of, I mean, filler episodes, really, aren't they? Uh, we're going to do an episode now on Arthur C. Clarke. And we'll it's do... like you're doing a Gerald Ratner on us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to do an episode in uh, next week on Stanley Kubrick before we kind of like immerse ourselves properly in the film. And I think actually it's not, it's not really filler. I think it is important to, to get to know these characters. Yeah. Because they're the two driving forces of that film. Um, yeah, they were quite. A, they were quite a team. They were, weren't they? So let's focus on Arthur C. Clarke, who I suppose. I mean, he's considered one of the three sort of most influential sci-fi writers of the twentieth century, isn't he? Along with Isaac Asimov and uh, Heinlein, Robert Heinlein, Heinlein, who I have to say I've never read any of Heinlein stuff. How many Clarke books have you read? Oh, a short, some short stories. And that's it. They're not all that easy to come by. There's quite I a think. few on YouTube to, be, to if you like listening to audiobooks. I know, but that's like ruining... I mean, I'm an author. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know what I mean? 
<laughs> I would I just tried. like everybody to know it's not that I forget. It's just, you know, that, that never occurred to me. What's the equivalent for me then as a photographer, I suppose? I suppose it's like somebody taking your photos and using them in, a, in an, in an ad, you know, you'd suddenly see photos you'd taken in an advertising campaign and somebody say, oh, we've changed it by 19%, so therefore it's ours. So <laughs> <laughs> screw you. So Arthur C. Clarke is thought of in that in those terms as an as a you know one of the preeminent sci-fi authors, but he is, I suppose, maybe unlike the other two. Heinlein, I don't know actually. That's not unfair. But he's also sort of like science fact man as well, isn't he? It's hard science. It's all based on what he knows and on projection, and it is uh, it, r- remarkably. The amount of things that he's come up with have have proved to be true. Yeah, but what I mean is that he's he's a sci-fi author, but also he had this other role, like as a futurist, but also as someone who like did kind of like do, like do stuff as well. I mean, <laughs> he did science. He, he did he did actual <laughs> science. Clark's a transhumanist as well. He's very interested in the evolution of humans through technology. And he's also interested in the advancement of humans through a natural but sped up progression of evolution. Okay. It's transhumanism, I, I always understood to mean like people having robotic arms and things like that. Yeah, it it, it kind of starts there and then ends up as, as we become a bit like, oh, I tell you what, you know what? This is really weird. We keep coming back to this film, the creation of the humanoids. Oh, shit. How do you switch off a call coming in? Oh, it's only I can hear it, isn't it? <laughs> That's like you're the anti Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's uh, we keep coming back to this film, the creation of the humanoids, which that's transhumanism, right? Where they're creating more and more advanced, and then they become like human. humans. Yeah, no. They become humans, but advanced. Okay. We barely got you in time. We did make you a bit thinner. You had a tendency to be plump. We said it was so, like, uh, prophetic, didn't we, at the time? How can this be? (laughs) How can such a terrible (laughs) film be so so influential (laughs) and so beloved? Yeah. I mean, like, this feels like, usually you go through the plot of a film. Let's just go through the early plot of of his life which is that he is he's uh english british yes born in somerset yeah um uh, and uh, when he was a kid he lived on a farm yeah. so he, he was a boy on a farm in the 1920s between the wars in somerset and so i suppose one thing that you would have in that time would be access to very dark skies so yes. he was a, he was a very keen uh, stargazer when he was a kid and was interested in fossil hunting and also I mean, reading American pulp magazines and comics as well. So he Which was a... he published in first. Oh, okay. First he published in those pulp magazines. A lot of the science fiction writers and the script writers that we talk about published in those magazines. That's cool. So, I mean, he was essentially a, a tiny little nerd, wasn't he? Yeah, he uh, was. Uh, interestingly, his parents, both his mother and his father, were in the postal business. Right. I think she used to do some sort of translations and send out uh, telegrams. Right. And he went to the post, and his and I think his auntie run the local post office. So he was into communication by default. Brilliant. 
That's great, that. I love it. And I know that we're completely retrofitting this, you know, being as we are at the at the other end of his life. But you sort of think I love all of that. All that stuff was just like fizzing around in that that little nerdy yeah. noggin of his. Well, and it was, was going, oh, look at those stars up there. Look at those stars up in the sky. <laughs> oh, a classic Matthew impression. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke. What you didn't expect hell? a beautiful Arthur C. Clarke. We didn't. Okay, my lover. <laughs> oh, look at that nebula up there. My mother, she sends telegrams. <laughs> so he did serve as well, didn't he? And and that, that was a, a kind of like a key point, I suppose, in his life because... He was involved, he was served in the Royal Air Force as a radar specialist and was involved in the early warning radar defence system, which contributed to the RAF success during the Battle of Britain. So he was, I suppose he was like a lot of clever people in the war. He was using his his brain, you know, to, to great effect. I think what he did was he didn't limit himself so he realized that the range that a tower can have because the earth is curved i know that's a shock was was <laughs> i wonder how many flat earthers we've got that listen to this <laughs> was very limiting so you've got the top of a tower that's sending out the signals and yeah. it can only go as far as the on the curve that it can reach from the height of the tower yeah so his mind had absolutely no problem with taking it up into space and he knew that we already knew through experiments that were done a long time ago with cannons and cannonballs that if you shoot something f- fast enough, long enough, it will end up continuously falling, which is what the ISS does. It's essentially falling around the outside of the planet. So it didn't take him long to realize that if you can get something up there, it can put it into a geostationary orbit, uh, you've increased your range to an entire hemisphere. And then put more units up in up into space, and you've got like a global communication that shows you that he's he his his mind is not limited. As we've we started speaking about it, let's chat a little bit about geostationary satellites. There's a um a, a sort of a, a region of of orbit around the Earth which is called the Clark Belt. Oh, really? Yeah, which is a circular orbit, which is. 22,236 miles above the Earth's equator. And what Arthur C. Clarke realised was that if you were to shove a satellite in that orbit, then it would rotate, it would turn at exactly the same rate as the ground below. And so it it always is effectively over the same part of the planet. But it's, I suppose it is important to know, and, it, and he would definitely want us. He'll be looking down, high-fiving Jesus, <laughs> and looking down. He'll be looking down at us doing this, and he'll say, "Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't invent that, boys." No, he didn't. You're right. Uh, so he he basically like took some existing work on this and moved it forward. Yes, he did. The concepts that he built on, and the calculations that he built on for the geostationary orbit were posited by Russian scientist and mathematician Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. So it was he who first calculated the eight kilometers per second velocity necessary to escape the Earth's orbit. So he was the person on whom's work Clark sort of added and built. It never ceases to amaze me how fast you have to go. Yeah. 
it's pointless me saying that it's like from from Seton Carew to Middlesbrough. <laughs> but that that's my drive to work. I would and that... absolutely love it if I was in the the thing that he'd published. <laughs> but he'd use that as his <laughs> as his guide to what eight kilometers was. Uh, people um, would flock to Seton Carew, they would. <laughs> So this concept of geostationary satellites, he published in Wireless World in October 45. And he also wrote a few non-fiction books uh, which described some of the technical details and also the sort of societal implications of spaceflight. Um, and then for all of this work, the um, this, this sort of orbit 22,000 miles above the equator was officially recognised as the Clark orbit or the Clark belt by the International Astronomical Union. So it was all official and above board. When you were talking about that, about geostationary orbits, it got me thinking about the James Webb telescope, which is magnificent. Yeah. And that is a re- uh, that's at a really interesting point because there's a point between the Earth and the Sun's magnetic fields, which is called a uh, Lagrange point. And this one is at a Lagrange point too. It's neither affected by either uh, of the um, uh, gravitational pulls of these two bodies. So it can just sit there and oh, stare. Cool. <laughs> just look. Just look. That's excellent. I like that. We're talking today with Arthur Clark, the man responsible for communication satellites. If you go if you go onto YouTube and plug in Arthur C. Clark, there's loads of, of uh, great videos and interviews that he did where he's sort of pontificating about wh- what the, what the future will look like. And I mean, he was pretty good at predicting. Mm, <laughs> predicting he was actually. Things. Uh, one of one of the other things that that Arthur C. Clarke predicted, this was he predicted this in 1975, was remote surgery. So so someone in um, oh, I don't know in Seton Carew would be able to get surgery from somebody who was in uh, Delhi or someone who was in New York that you could you'd have remote surgery sort of uh, over the internet even though the internet at that point did not exist. And one of the, I think the brilliant things about this prediction is that it did happen. So remote surgery is now a thing. But also one of the other things that he said about this, he said, well, yeah, the, the problem with it though will be that it'll, there's, there'll be a lag. He said, Hawaii is almost exactly on the other side of the world, which means you have to work through two comsats in series. During telesurgery, that extra time delay can be critical. So even on Earth, I'll say. <laughs> so, but I mean, that's. I mean, it's brilliant that I'd say that one of the things that you I constantly hear from my kids when they're gaming is that they they they're, they're, oh, they're bitching lag. about the lag. Um, and you think that that is so sort of a part of our our experience of technology is that it doesn't always operate in the way that we want it to, or in the way that that we're told it will. I thought that's brilliant that he he sort of like just completely as part of his thinking about what the shiny future would look like, he understands that there is there it'll have imperfections. It's great. I love it. It's brilliant, isn't it? But he he doesn't write he doesn't write about people to. It's not long, languorous discussions about relationships and things like that. It's all about the tech. It's all about what you have to do when you encounter these things. Yeah. One of the other things that he knew was coming, and this is in 1964. Uh, oh, oh, no, sorry, 1974. He was asked by a reporter what the world of 2001 would look like. And he said, 
that his son will have his own house and in his house he'll have a console through which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information he needs for his everyday life, his bank statements, his theatre reservations, all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. He'll have a television screen and a keyboard and he'll talk to the computer and get information from it. He'll take it as much for granted as we take the telephone. Do you know what I use mine for? To try and to try, if I lose my phone, I just shout, "Hey Siri, where are you?" I'm here. It's the equivalent of using this incredible technology just to look at videos of cats. Yeah, or like when people like use their iPads as like um, dinner trays. <gasps> Is that you? I've got mine behind me, and I did actually put my my empty plate on it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. But again, that is in, that's incredible that he he sort of just just nailed it. But I mean, as part of that, as part of as part of his um, sort of postulation about the internet, or I mean, what he didn't call it the internet, by the way. No, he. Um, he, I mean, he's he sort of talks even about search engines as well. He says that uh, you can call in through a console any information you want: airline flights, price of things at the supermarket, books you've always wanted to read. News selectively, you can tell the machine, I'm interested in such and such items, sports, politics, and so forth. And the machine will go to the main central library and bring you, bring all of this to you selectively, just what you want. Not all the junk you have to get when you buy the two or three pounds of wood pulp that is the daily newspaper. Mm. So, I mean, you know, he also, again, and, and he understood things like, again, this idea of... Um, this shiny world, but with imperfections. He he knew that there would be spam mail, and you'd have personalised yeah. ads. Sort yeah, of he knew about advertising. Yeah. He knew how irritating it would be, <laughs> yes. and he got that spot on. Absolutely. Um, he also knew that t- tablet computing devices were coming. With well, their they do appear in 2001 Space Odyssey. They do, and I read, and again, this is probably jumping the gun a bit, but that there's some there was some court case that that um between apple and samsung about who owned who owned the who owned the rights of um you know like touch touching you know when you touch the tablet and you can make things who, who really? owned that technology and i think i believe that apple were had taken samsung to court and samsung like played 2001 <laughs> and said look <laughs> it's like somebody somebody beyond us kind of like created this or, or at least created I came the idea. Came up with of the it. idea. Yeah. The, one of the other things that Arthur C. Clarke predicted is the rise of digital and network pornography. He did not. In a 1959 essay published in the Collected Stories of Arthur C. Clarke, the author describes a real life encounter with a US network executive, excited by possibilities that satellites and new communications technology might give rise to in the field of adult entertainment. Oh, wow. After a number of meetings, Clark is shown a proposed reel for transmission. My God, I said. Oh, sorry, I'll do it. My God, I said <laughs> when I recovered some of my composure. Are you going to tele- telecast that? Hartford laughed. Believe me, he answered, that's nothing. It just happens to be the only reel I can carry around safely. We're prepared to defend it any day on grounds of genuine art, historic interest, religious tolerance. Oh, we've thought of all the angles. But it doesn't really matter. No one can stop us. <laughs> he sounds like a like a villain, this guy, doesn't he? <laughs> For the first time in history, any form of censorship's become utterly impossible. There's simply no way of enforcing it. The customer can get what he wants. 
right in his own home. Lock the door, switch on the TV set. Friends and family will never know. Wow. So, so that was an interaction he had with a a television executive in the, in the 1950s based on his work the geostationary orbit of satellites. So, wow. That, that is quite impressive. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I suppose he didn't predict it, but he was then, it was one of the first things that came up. As soon as to something, technology invents something, yeah. then we, we collectively go, oh, great. Now, how, <laughs> how will this make <laughs> pornography better? <laughs> oh, it didn't take very long between Edward Mybridge's uh, invention of cinematography to getting little flick books of what the butler saw <laughs> right. on pier fronts. It didn't take very long at all. It was literally like months. Yeah. Now, would you like to know some things that Arthur C. Clarke predict- predicted that haven't come to pass? Yes. <laughs> okay. Come on. He's, he's too shiny at the moment. So in 1964, in a Horizon special, Arthur C. Clarke predicted that bioengineering would make possible a race of slaves based on monkeys. Monkeys. I remember that. <laughs> he said, with our present knowledge of animal psychology and genetics, we could certainly solve the servant problem with the help of the monkey kingdom. Of course, eventually, our super chimpanzees will start forming trade unions and we'd be right back where we started. <laughs> oh, dear God in heaven. Like, uh, well, do you know that a Planet of the Apes did come out the same year as 2001 Space Odyssey? And the phrase monkey butler did come out of that. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! He also, I mean, uh, when he when he first went to Ceylon, stroke Sri Lanka, he set up a business scuba diving, and he discovered a temple. Did he? He did. Well, that I mean, one thing that I have watched a lot for for this chat, and I would encourage everybody to check the show notes because I'll put links to all of these. But um, is the TV series Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. <laughs> Which is so brilliant, and I think probably captures this his sort of like this later stage of his life really nicely, because he 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 completely moved to Sri Lanka, didn't he? He did, yes, and he really did not want to come back to England. No, and and that's part of this. So this TV show is all about sort of you know mysteries of the world, and I remember watching this as a kid because there was a point when I was probably about fourteen, fifteen, thirteen, that sort of age where I was really obsessed with things like the Fortean Times and the Borley Rectory and the Yeti and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And these are all the things that, that Arthur C. Clarke talks about in this these series. And they are so brilliant. So the format is always the same of the Mysterious Worlds, where Arthur C. Clarke is like wandering on, on a beach in Sri Lanka, holding up an umbrella and <laughs> says, we'll say something like, um, there's now overwhelming evidence to support the existence of ghosts. Like we'll say something like that, and then you'll like go into these then these films that are made like interviewing people all over the world, but often in England. And then at the end, he'll then just slag off all of their all of what's happened and say ghosts are completely made up. <laughs> and it's the end of the episode. Draws you in, <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. But um, so the the episode on must have been ghosts. They had this interview with these two women in, in a cafe, 
who are, I mean, just out of the, they're out of a Monty Python sketch. It was in 1966 that a terrifying visitation came to the beach cafe where Mrs. Jean Meldrum and her mother, Mrs. Evelyn Murdoch, were working. All of a sudden, the whole kitchen where I was standing in just were lit up luminous white. I couldn't understand it. It was very frightening. And then the people, the screaming went on till the beach was empty, the cafe, people had all run out the cafe. They ran out like lightning. And the beach attendant, who had a wooden leg, he usually sat on a table just next to the counter. And you never saw him move so quick in all your life. The one about the Yeti is extraordinary because it's, it's, these, it's all of these sort of like old people or old men who, who went on expeditions with Edmund Hillary. And uh, they're all just like saying, they, they've got like almost no evidence. They've got a photograph of a, of a footprint. And they say things like, well... Based on this uh, evidence, I see no other no other explanation yeah. <laughs> other than the Yeti's existence. It's always got a pickaxe inside it to show you how big. The, yeah, to show the scale of it. And the footprints already been poo pooed. Yeah, I mean, it's like how easy would it? And also, it's, they they set up the idea that in Nepal, they basically like Edmund Hillary employed six hundred Sherpas. It's like, of course, they're going to say that it's that it's real. I mean, they're sort of financially invested in, in it. <laughs> but the Yeti is the weirdest one of all of the cryptids. I think it's just that, that everybody puts money into. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a regular one. It comes round and round. Um, Channel Four did a whole series of programs on the Yeti. They wanted to get um, artifacts from uh, places in the the Himalayas and do DNA tests on them. Yeah, you know, like the Yeti's finger and things like that. And, yeah. Um, the only conclusion that could come to was that uh, possibly at some point a brown bear met a different kind of bear and they and they had a union and produced a different form of bear right. that could be more upright. Yada, 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 yada. But the Yeti just, it persists. Persists. It's fascinating, but but those those episodes are, it is, it's so hard to sometimes tell them apart from Monty Python. Yeah, <laughs> these, these reports—they're so good. They were very they, that kind of thing was very popular at the time. There was something happening in England. That it was like weird Britain at the time. Loads of TV programs for kids were all sort of uh, all about psychic things going on and standing stones and weirdness. Yeah. Well, I suppose it. I mean, maybe that feeds into that. I mean, it's a quote from Arthur C. Clarke that we, we're constantly referencing on this, which program. is one of his three laws. Go on. What are the three laws? When a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. Two, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And then number three is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But there is a a, a contrapositive to that. Yes. Which is... Um, any technology distinguishable from magic is insufficiently advanced. But maybe that's what those, I mean, a lot of those those old men in the, the Mister Arthur C. Clarke's mysterious world, it felt like that they were, that we know so much more now. I mean, it's easy to, to be sneery and sniffy at people like that, I suppose, from the seven, 1970s, who themselves were probably born in the 1910s, 1920s. But they just didn't have the, the scientific 
tool bag, did they, that, that your Arthur C. Clarke? No, but had. I think it, it fires your imagination. I loved all of that. I read Eric von Daniken's, you know, Chariot of the Gods, and it, it fueled my interest in archaeology. It didn't fuel my interest in ancient aliens. No. I really got interested in seeing all these different places and seeing all these different, you know, everything was Egyptian, wasn't it? And then all of a sudden there were other cultures. So it can pull you in. Yeah. Uh, and I think oh, the world needs mysteries. I think if we know, and a lot of Arthur C. Clarke's books are about knowing everything, but but then again, that's quite interesting that he would do a program like that, which is all about mysteries, yeah. but then debunking them at the end. <laughs> yes. But no, I I love I, I love a conspiracy theory. Yeah, you do. But also, you like I remember you ch- we were chatting about um, Atlantis in one episode, and you were talking about reading H.P. Lovecraft. And that you, you couldn't, you couldn't wrap your head around the, the fact that one person had come up with yeah. this mythology. Yeah, when I was when I was reading out the the things that conjured up Cthulhu, I literally began to believe it. Yeah, but I mean, that's I think that's fair for a teenager. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like what you do, isn't it? You you're like just so full of wonder, and I'd say that that's probably like like a scientist like. Um, well, any, I suppose any scientist would probably say that the, the, the thing they're in it for is the, is the mystery, isn't it? Yeah. They, they don't know everything. So, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke was knighted in 2000 for services to literature. He remained on in Sri Lanka until he died in 2008. And He was constantly visited by uh, lots of famous people, Harrison right. Ford and... All of the, um, all of the, generally all of the people who were in the space race at the time yeah. would go and visit him. He was, he was quite, you know, welcoming. He is buried in Sri Lanka with the person he lived with, a guy called Leslie Ikanyake, who Clark called his only perfect friend of a lifetime. In an interview in the July 1986 issue of Playboy magazine, he. <laughs> When asked if he'd had a bisexual experience, Clark stated, Of course! Who hasn't? Oh, there, he's still got the accent. <laughs> he hasn't picked anything up from Sri Lanka then. No, not yet. <laughs> and then in his obituary, his friend Kerry O'Quinn wrote, Yes, Arthur was gay. As Isaac Asimov once told me, I think he simply found he preferred men. Arthur didn't publicise his sexuality. That wasn't the focus of his life. But if asked, he was on open and honest. No, it didn't define him, did it? No. No, not at all. Have any Space connection pipe. to robotics? I don't think he was like heavily focused on robots, was he? No, just the no. future. Just the future and that. What is the future going to be like? <laughs> was something he constantly asked himself. <laughs> oh. But it's what's so nice what? is that the so I'm leaning into that sort of stereotype of of the West Country. There was a twang in his voice. Yeah, there, there was, was a, a twang. Bit, yeah, there was there a bit of a hint. Was, yeah. But, I mean, there's, the stereotype is sort of like f- farming, which is obviously where he came from, and yet he became like the most sort of extraordinary prophet of the future that we've ever had. Yeah. And a nice guy. And a seemingly really nice guy who loved scuba yeah. diving and debunking sort of irrational thought. Clark was... Uh, a well-known admirer of the Irish fantasy writer Lord Dunsany, also having corresponded with him until Dunsany's death in 1957, he described Dunsany as one of the greatest writers of the century. He also listed H.G. Wells, uh, Jules Verne, Edgar Rice Burroughs as influences. 
Yeah. Lord Dunsany has a great real name. Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett, 18th, 18th Baron of Dunsany. Let's close the book on Arthur C. Clarke, the brilliant Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, next week we'll be opening up a new chapter in our 2001 Odyssey. We'll be looking at the life of Stanley Kubrick. And what a life. What a life. What a life. So um, have a great week. We'll speak to you again next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. And the beach attendant who had a wooden leg and you never saw any moose equipment all your life. <laughs>